0: Hello, everyone. Before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr. Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But The main thing is he's an absolute and total enthusiast. And that, to me, is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So Diane Perkis of The People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done The People's History Approach to Food. There's one just out on medieval food and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal potcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr Neil Buttery.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 213, Background to War. Can I start by reminding you, should you need reminding, that if you wish you may become a member of the History of England. Membership brings you great power and with great power comes great responsibility. Well, actually, it buys you no power whatsoever. But what it does buy you is a back catalogue of podcasts. It buys you access to new podcasts every month, and it buys you my undying gratitude because I'm not a complicated or proud person. The profile at the moment is for various topics in English history. We've had wills, diplomacy, English nationalism. There's a history of Scotland. And at the moment, we're in nation forming period: Gaels, Picts, and Britons, Angles. I've just done a life of the great cardinal, the butcher's boy Thomas Wolsey. And over the next couple of months, there will be an episode on the medieval and early modern tournament, an episode which is a blaze of colour and generally a hoot, one on Thomas More, a man not quite as saintly as he's cracked up to be, and we continue the story of the Scots. It's a smorgasbord, gentle listener, a jolly cornuid copia of joy, delight and soft cushions. To sign up and make an honest man of me, just go to thehistoryofengland.co.uk and click on Become a Member. Now then, last time I promised some serious stuff. And so I'll do my very best to deliver. Today, we're going to just finish off some homey stuff. The birth of young Prince Henry, the tournament of 1511 that accompanied it, and that sort of thing. And then we're going to have a general update on the state of European armies and the dramatis personae with whom Henry's diplomacy will have to deal. Then next time, we'll have an episode of Henry's military adventures at the start of his reign. So, while Henry was pratting about in slashed doublets with his minions, it looked as though he was at least fulfilling one of his kingly duties, getting himself an heir. It had been announced in November 1509 that Catherine was pregnant. Everyone was delighted. Yay! But on the 31st of January 1510, she miscarried of a daughter. Very few were told, just Henry, two Spanish ladies-in-waiting and the physician. But oddly, Catherine's swelling continued. Remarkably, although Catherine's menstrual cycle started again, the physician advised that it was all okay. Ah, the Queen was still pregnant. Seriously. This went on for some time. On the 24th of February, the swelling was still there and the time came for her confinement. Her chamber was prepared according to her wishes and Catherine and her ladies entered their private precincts. Everyone waited. Henry organised some games of running at the ring on the 18th of March to take his mind off things. Eventually, the truth became unavoidable. The infection finally cleared, Catherine's swelling went down, a new Spanish ambassador arrived and gave everyone a tongue-lashing that they could possibly have ever believed the poor woman was still pregnant. And a worried discussion took place in the King's Council about whether Catherine would be able to get pregnant again and the quality of her menstruation, would you believe? The whole incident is absolutely remarkable, not just for the pain and agony Catherine must have gone through due to the general stupidity, presumably caused by an excess of hope, which is always painful, of course. It wasn't until the end of May that Catherine, dutiful daughter of Ferdinand of Aragon as she was, screwed up the courage to tell her father about the miscarriage. It's also remarkable as an example of the complete lack of privacy that both Catherine and Henry had. They were public property, as it were. For Catherine, her most private and personal details were a matter of distaste discussion by a bunch of blokes in the King's Council. For Henry, he was also never alone, ever. Even at night, attendants or indeed minions shared his bed, the humbler attendants usually sleeping at the foot of the bed. However, better news was on the way for Catherine. In June 1510, she discovered that she was pregnant again. Not sure how far this goes into serious political historical study, but it's also during the Queen's supposed pregnancy that we get the first suspicion of a royal affair. It concerns Anne Stafford. Anne was the sister of one of England's richest nobles, the Duke of Buckingham, and 27 years old in 1510. She was married to a chap called George Hastings, and as Lady Hastings, she was one of Catherine's ladies-in-waiting. Gossip among the ladies-in-waiting about Anne was rife. It was all over the place. The wires were humming, zinging, zinging with rumour about Anne's behaviour. Anne's sister, Elizabeth, was also at court and eventually she could bear it no longer and she told their brother Buckingham. Buckingham then clearly kept his eyes peeled and one day he hit pay dirt. He discovered William Compton in Anne's chamber. William Compton was Henry's groom of the stool. High words were exchanged between Buckingham and Compton and among them this memorable phrase. Women of the Stafford family are no game for Comptons, no, nor for Tudors either. Hastings, the hubby, was informed. Anne was spirited away from court to a nunnery for a while. And the debate then is whether Anne was having an affair with Henry or with Compton. Either interpretation is possible. If it had been Henry, Compton is exactly the person Henry would have employed as a go-between. A few modern commentators simply assume it was indeed an affair with Henry. I'm not so sure. Henry then dismissed Anne's sister Elizabeth from court for her, quote, meddling. I would think that would be hard to justify on the grounds that she'd got in the way of his infidelity. Presumably, he must have justified it as being an accusation without foundation. Anne went on to have a pretty good relationship with Hastings by the looks of things. Compton, on his death 17 years later, left Anne a life interest in a property in Leicestershire. Now that's distinctly odd. I think maybe the odds are on Compton, but who am I to take issue with proper historians? Henry spent the summer of 1510 on one of his progresses in the south of England, setting out from the palace at Greenwich, on to Windsor, and onwards, hunting, shooting, fishing, skipping and hopping. Henry was more than a little paranoid about plague and other illnesses, so the route ahead would have been scouted for the presence of epidemics and avoided if there was any news. There had been a wave of bubonic plague very recently in 1509 to 1510. You might be interested to know also that in 1510 appeared the first pandemic of influenza. You might not be interested of course. But anyway, interested or not, it was described as gasping oppression with cough, fever and a sensation of constriction of the heart and lungs. And although it had a high hit rate, as it were, the death rate was relatively low. It seems to be in the continent rather than England at this early stage in its life. It would be back in 1557 and for the rest of humankind's life. Catherine concentrated on the pregnancy and she decided to stay at Elton Palace. In November then, the formal preparations for the birth began. As laid down by Margaret Beaufort for Elizabeth of York, Catherine withdrew to a specially prepared area of the palace before the Christmas celebrations and on New Year's Day, a courtier rushed into the king's presence and delivered the glad tidings. A child had been born, which is handy. And even better news, it was a boy. Well, I can tell you, everyone went potty. Heralds ran about proclaiming his name, Prince Henry, first son of our sovereign lord, Henry Eighth, And Henry shelled out rewards to them with gay abandonment, £20 a time for everyone who told him. This was a good time to be a herald, £20 was a major windfall. The little chap was christened, Louis Twelfth of France was made his godfather and sent magnificent presents. Henry went on pilgrimage to Walsingham. He didn't hurry, it has to be said, taking ten days to travel the hundred miles. An indication of the level of holy thoughts he must have had on the way might be indicated by the large dead deer he sent back to Catherine as a present. Silly to waste the opportunity for a spot of hunting while on your way to see the Shrine of the Virgin Mary. The other way to celebrate, though, was obvious. Hey, here was a chance for a tournament. Whoa! So, in February 1511 at Westminster, in celebration of the birth, Henry issued a challenge as Secur Loyal, a figure from the granddaddy of all chivalric stories, the Roman de la Rose. We have a highly decorated roll of honour from the event, showing Henry breaking a lance on his opponent in front of his applauding and adoring wife and sister, Mary. The Spanish ambassador Caroth wrote to King Ferdinand of the constant tournaments that went on, and that quote, the most conspicuous, the most assiduous, the most interested is the king himself. The sun was shining, God was in his heaven, Henry was in love with his wife; it couldn't be better. But within a few days, the little prince was dead. Both Catherine and Henry were, of course, grief-stricken the first worries about her son and heir were beginning to surface. But it's still early days. Let us turn away from Henry's fight for love to another of Henry's quests, the fight for glory, which, as someone remarked somewhere, is still the same old story. To do that, I need to pick us all up and fly into the sky so that we can look down at the continent of Europe laid down below us. Let's pick a convenient cloud to sit on, of which there are many in England available at pretty much any time and consider the context into which Henry walked. First, the Dramatis Personae, of which there are four. The first is Louis Twelfth, just shy of 50 in 1511. He'd been personally involved as a military commander in the Italian wars of his predecessor, Charles VIII, a struggle with Aragon and Spain for the control of the Kingdom of Naples, down there at the southern end of the Italian peninsula. Charles had eventually been forced to run like the proverbial rabbit, or run for home as Lindisfarne might have had it, but it left the French holding Milan still, the mighty Duchy of Northern Italy. It had also left Louis wanting more as far as Italy was concerned. In Spain, we have the redoubtable villain, 59-year-old king, father of the bride, Ferdinand of Aragon, who through his rather ruthless treatment of his daughter, Queen Joanna, Queen of Castile, after the death of her mother, Isabel, was now effectively king of all Spain. He was also king of Sicily, and was the winner of the southern Italian wars, Charles VIII had kicked off, and therefore King of Naples. Say what you like about Ferdinand, an unreliable snake might be one of the nicer things you might say about the man's morality. Ferdinand was an extraordinarily successful ruler. Waiting in the winds is his grandson Charles, underage King of Castile, successor to Aragon when Ferdinand pops off, but also heir through his dad, Philip of Burgundy, to the entire Habsburg lands. We are not yet at the age of Emperor Charles V, though we stand in its anteroom. Okay, so Louis XII of France, Ferdinand of Aragon, which brings us to the Bishop of Rome, the Pope. This is 67-year-old Julius II, the warrior Pope, as he's known. Not for him the life of poverty and otherworldliness. Though, to be fair, such a thing was scarcely possible for a medieval Pope. Julius had thrown the smallest morsel of such an idea to the winds, however. He had concluded that the papacy would never be safe from the intervention of foreign powers until it had the lands to defend itself and it dominated Italy. He would do this by aligning with foreign powers. he had allied against the evading Charles VIII, but now he was after Venice in northern Italy with the help of the League of Cambrai, in which was included France. None of the three above were therefore lovers of peace and the quiet life of contemplation. None would find favour with Mr Uguay. What about the fourth, James IV of Scotland? 38-year-old James has a great reputation. He was a Renaissance prince, trailing a love and patronage of art and culture in his wake and an effective political operator. The Spaniard Pedro de Ayala was thoroughly impressed by him, remarking that, quote, his knowledge of languages is wonderful. And also remarking, the king speaks besides the language of the savages who live in some parts in Scotland and on the islands. It seems a little rude to the gentle inhabitants of the Highlands and Islands, Scotland, and I would like to formally apologise on Pedro's behalf. I'm sure he was tired when he wrote it, and now heartily regrets such appalling language. Anyway, it has to be said that we've met James the Fourth before, and we know he's not a stay-at-home sort of lad either and he came to the throne every bit as keen to prove himself in war and glory as anybody. As we've seen, he enthusiastically espoused the cause of pork in Warbeck till he realised he'd brought a pup and retired in disgust. He'd spent a considerable proportion of his income building up a Scottish navy, which the English viewed with some alarm. Henry VII had courted him, and he'd married his daughter and Henry VIII's sister, Margaret, so you might think that the old rifts between England and Scotland would have healed. And the both would have been contemplating a combined entry into the Six Nations Rugby Tournament in love and amity. In which case, you would be sadly, sadly mistaken. Oh dear, sadly mistaken. The old alliance, Scotland and France, stick England, would be as powerful a draw as any to James IV. So there we go, a little biopic to start us out. I thought it might also be a good idea to have a brief resume or summary of the world military. I know how much you'll all like a detailed run-through of the arquebus and the musket and military tactics and formations. I can see you all dribbling gently as I speak. So don't worry, I'll not inflict that level of pain on you, but just to note a few things.
0: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also,
1: you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Essentially, in the early 16th century, we stand in a period of transition. In 1955, a historian called Michael Roberts gave a very influential lecture, He was a historian of the 17th century Sweden, which is a good place to be in life, since you get to study the glories of Gustav Adolf and Christina and its hoot. Anyway, Roberts argued that from 1560 to 1660 there'd been a military revolution, which had profoundly affected not only warfare, but society more broadly. The basic thesis was that guns, infantry tactics and discipline had greatly expanded the scale of warfare that states had therefore created standing permanent armies as the stakes were increasingly raised. An early modern arms race as it were. To raise and maintain these armies they reorganized their governmental structures to raise the taxation required. The new monarchies continued as it were enhanced and driven by military technology. I can see you're looking ever so slightly grumpily at your mp3 device and you're saying well fine since we're in 1511 why is he warbling on about this now? Well, we come to Geoffrey Parker, a prof once of St Andrews University who once had an unusual intelligent student there in the
0: 80s.
1: (laughs) Actually, he did take me for one course. Jolly good he was too, though a little scary and very strange tastes in tinted spectacles. But then this was the 80s and people made some dreadful fashion statements in the 80s, did they not? Anyway, now for this personal stuff. Parker's work extended the chronology of the revolution firmly to the 16th century. He, to a degree, extended the work to take in a global perspective as well. He focused on the development of the capital ship, infantry firepower and the artillery fortress as the three big areas that drove the military revolution and which, in his words, allowed the West to make the most of its smaller resources in order to resist and eventually to expand to global dominance. Cool. Then, that went into the normal historical process where a bunch of folks say, yay, Henry, and another bunch of folks say, oh, come on, Henry, get real. But the theory became revised and pushed about, but basically survived. And one of the ways it changed is that, as normal people said, well, look, really, you can't say that one morning an Italian condottieri, for example, woke up, put on his hose and wandered outside to see a massive, great, thick walled fortress covered with artillery a bunch of caravel-rigged ships bristling with cannon in the harbour below, and a brigade of infantry drilling with rolling musket fire down in the yard below as well. The point is that it all happened over time. It was an evolution rather than a revolution, which is equally part of the historiographical process as far as I can see. You say tomato, I say tomato, you say revolution, I say evolution. So folks essentially said, oi, Look at the 15th century and early 16th century to boot, because that's where it started. And that is where we are, of course. The late 15th century and early 16th century then were periods of intense experimentation as technology changed. On the sea, we've already seen the development of the caravel-rigged ship that is opening up the new world to European exploration, exploitation and the development. On land... Changes are essentially driven by gunpowder and its uses. Artillery started as these enormous cannons chucking massive great big thick stones at thin walls. Everything was non-standard and the guns were so enormous that sometimes they were actually founded on site because dragging them around was so painful. The end point we'll get to in the 17th century is a very wide range of artillery for different purposes and a completely different design of fortresses. Some bright spark said, look, why are we building walls high when it just makes it easier for artillery to knock them down? What we really need is super thick walls. So, if you go and look at Hurst Castle, one of Henry VIII's vanity projects towards the end of his reign, down on the south coast, the emphasis is on thick walls to absorb the shock of artillery. But also, of course, artillery can be better housed within castles with nice thick walls, For them to go and sit on the top of. The design of fortresses becomes, well, extravagant is the word I might use, great star formations to allow interlocking fire of artillery, wide open spaces of ground between inner and outer walls, so that the attacking forces can be mown down in a field of fire. That, of course, wasn't a new concept. History is awash with the anguished cries of citizens who'd built their houses against the castle wall, only for them to be pulled down when the enemy came to call, and the defence prepared. But with artillery, of course, those killing fields were even more deadly. In the words of Aragon, today is not that day, the day to explain the 17th century fortress, since, as you'll have noticed, this is the 16th century, not the 17th, but we are moving that way. The difficult thing is that it's so much harder to see those fortresses today, while old medieval castles are all around us. Those other fortresses, those big thick walled fortresses, get pulled down because they're so utterly ugly and consume so much space. And unlike the continent, there was no war played out on English soil except a civil one, and so less impetus for building the things in the first place. An artillery train, though, became absolutely essential if you were even to pretend to be a potent attacking force. Seriously, if you don't have an artillery train, go home, young man. This became part of the military scenery before too long into the 15th century. And artillery becomes more flexible, with lighter iron and bronze artillery pieces which are much more mobile and which were essential for siege warfare, and frequently became used on the battlefield as well. The battlefield presented a problem, and we're really not there yet, because artillery is still cumbersome. And if you lost the battle, you would basically lose all your artillery as well, because you couldn't remove it quickly enough. So, it really takes to the 17th century for field artillery to be a consistent part of the battlefield. But they are around. The defeat at Castillon in 1453, for example, was often attributed to the use of artillery by the French. But it's in siege warfare that artillery made the biggest transformation in the 15th and 16th century. And this was demonstrated by Charles VIII of France in the 1490s, when he marched irresistibly all along the length of the entire Italian peninsula. Bristling with fortifications it was, absolutely helpless in the face of French artillery. There's another impact of these big cannon and fortresses, which is on domestic architecture. There really is no point, as an overprivileged and disgustingly wealthy baron, to go and build yourself a castle. If you did rebel, like, say, Henry II's barons in 1174, the end would now be much quicker. They would be destroyed by artillery super quick. Obviously, this is not simply a technology thing. It's about the concentration of wealth and capacity for violence in central government but expensive advanced artillery plays its part. So now the rich build palaces, not castles, with windows and much less emphasis in design going to defence. Much prettier, it has to be said. So we refer to sale, talked of artillery, which brings us to infantry. Infantry used essentially to be something present on the battlefield, as a bunch of peasants essentially to cheer on their lords and masters as they thundered across the battlefield with their lances couched, or even thundered across the battlefield dismounted. All that had comprehensively changed by the 15th century. What happened was specialisation, and specialisation was often regionalised as well. So, English and Welsh archers are a good example, Genoese crossbowmen, another. But the most iconic probably came from the Switzers, as the Swiss used to be known, with the arrival of the mercenary Swiss pikemen. A pike is a large carnivorous fish carried into battle by the Switzers to bite the kneecaps of their opponents. Or alternatively, a pike was a long pole with a sharp pointed bit at the end. Traditionally, in 1386, at the Battle of Sempach, the Swiss won a hard-earned victory against the empire, despite the empire's use of pikes. But they decided that pikes would be a good idea, and so they became masters of the pike. The pike used properly in formation, neutralised heavy cavalry. Swiss mercenaries became the best and most disciplined users of the pike throughout Europe, hired by all to fight for them during the 14th and 15th centuries. Their dominance was challenged only when others also tried to specialise as did the German landsknechts in the 15th century. By the time of the Italian Wars then, in the 1490s, battles often became perilously embroiled in what became known as push of pike. Pike formation fought pike formation, long poles seeking for advantage, men from the back rows pushing the front rows forward. If neither side gave way quickly, it was vicious, bloody slaughter. The Swiss, though, demonstrated the superiority of pike in battles such as Granson and Mora in 1476, where they walloped the Burgundians, despite the fact that the Burgundians had the best heavy cavalry in Europe. Someone noticed a few things, however. Firstly, that the pike was an inconveniently long and unwieldy sort of thing. Certainly, if you had a sword and came up against an individual bloke with a 25-foot pike, and some of them were as long as that, you would be pretty darn confident that the pikeman would have a big L on his forehead within a few minutes. So, there were the other specialised fighters created, often Spanish, called the rodilleros. Armed with buckler and sword, their job was to sneak around, duck under the unwieldy pikes, and take out a few pikemen, creating a gap to be exploited by the pikemen. Someone else noticed that these massed ranks of men, essentially all standing really close together, were sitting ducks when it came to ranged weapons, bolts, crossbows... that sort of thing. And the Scots had already found this out to their great cost at Falkirk. Now, field artillery was therefore super effective against such massed formations of men, but as we've already discussed, they were terribly hard to get to a battlefield, and you took a risk of losing a lot of expensive ordnance if you had to retreat. And so, into the story does indeed come the arquebus and gunpowder. The arquebus is a muzzle-loaded smooth-bored tube of iron with a wooden handle, effectively, lit with a long, slow-burning match. There's a crossover period here with the longbow. Arquebuses had a longer range and more power, but far less accuracy and rate of fire. Critically, a longbow, though, was a lifetime training job, while the arquebus could be used by a muppet. It was a Hungarian king, Matthew Corvinus, who took the bull by its proverbials, horns, that is, and modelled arquebuses into his army, every fifth man had one, and with the help of both arquebus and heavy cavalry, the Hungarians seem to have held off the Ottoman challenge. Watch this space on that one, though. The arquebus could penetrate plate armour was the thing, but actually until the musket came along in 1521, with a narrower muzzle and greater power, good plate armour could still be effective against the arquebus. So pikemen would often deploy folks with heavy armour or shields at the front to take the first volleys. Meanwhile, formations of arquebuses became more disciplined as infantry drills and tactics progressed. And so we come to the concept of volley fire. You know the thing, you've seen it on Zulu. Well, maybe not Zulu, but you know, rank two fires while rank one reloads. Don't fire till you can see the whites of their eyes, lads. Can I go and read a book, Sergeant? Mum said I can stand around in the cold, that sort of thing. You might think, that all of this put an end to heavy cavalry. You would be wrong to go higher. But there's no doubt that warfare was no longer a one-trick pony. <laughs> cavalry had to change. There was still highly specialised heavy cavalry in the 16th century, and against a broken formation, it was deadly. The French continued to employ their gendarmes, as they were called. The Ottomans had their sipahis. But all now also had a lighter cavalry designed to be more mobile, and which began to adopt pistols and even arquebuses. Well, all of this is very confusing, is it not? I mean, if you're a 16th century general, which approach would you favour? The answer, of course, and I'm sure you are there well before me, is a mixture. The 16th century is a period of experimentation in formations, weaponry tactics, and overall the focus was how to integrate all these elements effectively. Sometimes traditional tactics and armies defeated the more modern because modern techniques were poorly used against expertly deployed, more traditional approaches. The most effective army was the one that brought them all together, made them work in a disciplined, integrated plan. Obviously the feudal noble army of the Middle Ages was dead and buried, but then it had been for some time. In its place was the contracted army, Under this system, individual captains were contracted to provide infantry or cavalry companies. It's in providing these captains that the nobility were now involved in war. In early days, they stuck to cavalry companies, but by the 16th century, they are also providing infantry companies. The men they provided might be their tenants in many cases, but equally they might not be. They might just be drawn from the general population. But there were two other sources. Governments would go abroad for mercenary contingents outside their borders, and of course the Swiss pikemen and the German landsnecks were good examples of these. The other source was that of permanent standing armies. They might be specialist troops like those gendarmes, or they may be bodyguards for the king, or maybe garrison troops. But it is these that began to form the nucleus of the modern permanent professional army, and the Emperor and the French King led the field in their maintenance. The English kings were not entirely devoid of a professional military capability. In 1461, for example, they'd started the Royal Armoury, a permanent department dedicated to producing edged weapons and armour for royal armies. Alongside it was the Office of Ordnance, responsible for the production of artillery and all that sort of thing. There were also a very limited number of permanent soldiers at Calais and Berwick, less than 300 in total. But the English kings from the time of Henry IV had signed up to that parliamentary mantra of living of their own, no taxation in times of peace, essentially. Their ability to develop a standing army on the continental model was therefore much more limited than their competitors. So, we are ready, gentle listeners, to leap into Henry's first military adventures and that will be next week. So meanwhile, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for your generous reviews on Facebook and iTunes, and see you all next week.